Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. So it's day four of COP and the focus today is all about energy. And for me, what's even more exciting is I get to go. I feel like I've been benched for the last three days after hurting my ankle at the end of last week and being back on my crutches. Um, And I am finally mobile enough to be up and about. And so heading into the city centre and out to the green zone to see who I can talk to and what's going on all around our energy future. So I'll see you on the other side. So the COP26 wagon rolls on its second day that I've kind of been really involved in the events here. Today for me is all about heat. So we're at Scottish Enterprises and Scottish Government's joint event. Today is going to split into two. One is heat innovation for a cooler tomorrow. And the second is looking at heat uh, along the Clyde and understanding, you know, the Clyde side, what, what we can do to capture all these untouched resources, whether that's from the Clyde or whether that's mine water geothermal. There's a whole host of opportunities that kind of stretch way beyond uh, gas or heat pumps, um, but, but a way of actually capturing heat from our waters and doing something with that. Uh, so really excited about this. In fact, we've probably got some of the most you know, important people in the, in the heating sector in, in a single room here from, from Scotland um, and hoping to learn, learn a lot more. Right, we're being called in uh, over and out and uh, I'll maybe reflect a little bit later about what we've learned. Okay, see you soon. So I have finally made it into Glasgow city centre, which is pretty busy. Haven't seen a huge amount of stuff relating to COP other than the shuttle bus that just went past. Absolutely rammed. I don't know how I'm going to get on that to get out to the venue. But I'm now stood in the city centre with Professor Malcolm McCulloch, who has been at COP for the last few days and has been having an absolutely fantastic time launching the... Uh, The International Community of Local Smart Grids. Okay, tell us more about what this is going to do and how this is going to change the world and help deliver net zero. It's only going to change the well. It's going to change the world in a small way. But the idea is is that the grids around the world are all facing similar challenges as we decarbonise. They're now going to do lots of different things. 
from you know in the UK and putting lots of uh, electric vehicles and, and now we're going to put, probably put a lot of heat pumps to places like Australia where not only do they have a lot of solar but they've also got to deal with a lot of uh, wildfires and the like and 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 Anel has a lot of flooding so the idea is, is that this community of people which is both DNOs and local communities can kind of share learnings from each other it's all about saying, you know, we're all on a journey, we're going to make mistakes, but from those mistakes we're all going to learn, and the idea is we share those learnings so that not everybody goes through the same mistakes to get the same learning. Very, very exciting. And you launched this on November the 2nd in, in the Blue Zone, in the UK Pavilion, I believe. Have you yeah. had much interest so far? Yes, so we've had a, a lot of interest from that. Uh, what is kind of cool is that Patrick Valence was in the corner watching us and, and stayed the whole time, didn't run away. That, that, <laughs> that, that, that was great to hear. Shout out to Patrick. Thank you for that. So uh, stepping away from that, I mean, today is the 4th of November, an energy day. What are your kind of hopes and dreams for, for what can be achieved at COP beyond these initiatives uh, that you're involved in? Well, to me, the exciting bit is that I think um, just hearing around the place is that a lot of the companies and the organizations are actually ahead of the governments rather than behind them in the sense of their aspirations and actually doing this. And we're all recognizing stuff has to get done. And I think this decade is going to be the biggest decade where we see our energy system change dramatically. And to me, it's going to be really exciting times. Yes, they're going to be problems and there's going to be mistakes made but you know hopefully with every mistake made a lot of learning will gather and we can make it much more better and more efficient and so I suspect by the time we get to 2030-ish or so the world will be unrecognizable in, in the energy space which would be fantastic and hopefully it'll be a lot better and then I think we'll move on to the next big challenge which is to say you know once we've got energy sorted that allows us to then start to talk about circular economy and things like that because if we can get energy under control we can then look at materials and how we work with that. So the other great thing is, is that coupled with the technical transition is also a recognition now that it's got to be a just transition. So we're hoping that this change in the technology space will also help gently nudge the just transition which would be great awesome well thank you very much really useful insights let's see what the rest of the day brings i'm in the lighthouse uh, glasgow city center we've we've had a fantastic set of talks this morning uh, trying to understand how we can change the way in which we heat our homes our, our workplaces to deliver net zero and i'm joined by none other than four of the most senior individuals who work for a company called Sunamp. So Sunamp is a revolutionary energy and heat storage technology uh, company. Uh, and we'll, we'll hear a little bit more about what the technology does in a moment. So I'm, I'm joined by uh, Maurizio uh, Zaglio. Hank Corbett. Victor Aguilera. And Andrew Bissell. Thank you very much for your time and welcome to Glasgow if you've, uh, if you've made the journey. So, so if we can briefly begin for our listeners. They're all interested in what they, they can do as individuals, as households, as communities to go low carbon and heat is a massive massive portion of that so what does your technology do and how could it potentially unlock zero carbon heating so what we make is an extremely compact way of storing heat and what that means is that we can store the same heat that would be in a 200 liter hot water tank in a space that's smaller than a half width dishwasher and what does that enable it enables you to put a heat pump in a house where otherwise you wouldn't have room for the hot water tank. 
that is probably our most direct enabler of a fully renewable technology. Okay, so, so if I can summarise it in layman's terms, what you have is essentially a really high-tech equivalent of a water cylinder, but it's far, far more efficient if I understood your talk earlier, Andrew. Is that right? It's about four times more energy dense. And if you think about what that really means, it means that properties that were designed to take combi boilers that never had the room for a cylinder can accommodate a direct replacement with something that needs the equivalent of a hot water cylinder. But it does it by using the heat battery to fit in the same space. Our, our products are designed to fit that space. Okay, and just, just fill me in a little bit more on the listeners how this phase change technology actually works. I, I understand it up to the point basically where it's a little bit like hand warmers. If you imagine those things where you kind of crack them, you shove them in your gloves, maybe once we could all go skiing once upon a time pre-COVID if we, if we were lucky enough. Um, are we on, am I on the right track or is it something far more complicated? You're absolutely on the right track. A hand warmer, there's two types actually. One is one use. One is reusable. We're like the reusable ones. But a typical reusable hand warmer, you can use it five times, ten times, twenty times. Maybe if you're really lucky, a hundred times. But that's not enough. Because for hot water and space heating, you need almost infinite reuse and recharging. What we've cracked working with the University of Edinburgh and some really clever chemists is how to make it last tens of thousands of cycles. And that's certificated... It's patented as well, but we're making it widely available through licensing. Yep. And we call that technology platform Plentigrade. Yep. And you can see where it comes from. Plentiful yeah. heat energy, Plentigrade. And, and, and from your talk, you said this thing can last 50 years. 40,000 cycles twice a day, 50 years. With over 95% capacity left. And then we can restore it to 100% again when we reuse it to make another product at the end of its life. So what's next for Sunam? To what extent do you need the stars to align? What do you need from government, from industry, from the building sector? What do you need to get SunAmp into the stratosphere? We need ongoing support from the building community, obviously support from the government in terms of encouraging people to switch over to our our solution. It's very simple. That's what we need. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you indeed. So I am now stood outside of the green zone. It's a beautiful sunny day. Just got through security in record time, which uh, I was not expecting. And I'm stood here with Nicole, who is from Brazil. Nicole, tell me what you're excited about and why you're here. I work for Arayara, which is an NGO that is 30 years old, a Brazilian NGO. And we work on defending life on all of its forms. So either by doing energy just transition or defending human rights or uh, racial equality. And, and our podcast is all about local climate action, right? So... A lot of the issues are caused by big companies on, you know, national level decisions. But what you're doing is really trying to engage citizens and local communities, but kind of in in different ways, right? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because sometimes we feel powerless because the problems are so big and uh, up level that we feel distance from it as normal citizens. So how we do at Ayara in Brazil is we engage everybody in cities um, and we believe that power is really through local change. So I can give you a few examples. This year there was an oil auction and they auctioned blocks uh, for oil drilling on the coast of Brazil, uh, in the northeast and in the south. And they auctioned very, very sensitive areas for biodiversity where whales mate and where um, a lot of fishing communities depend on fish and they wanted to drill 
on top of coral reefs, wow. the most important ones. So how we did is we engaged the cities of um, where the oil blocks were in front mm -hmm. and we mobilized the local community. We did public hearings and we did around 50 public hearings. We also litigated and the citizens, the cities, even though they didn't have anything to do with the big oil auction that was doing, being done by the federal government and foreign companies buying like Shell mm -hmm. um, or Total, uh, what they did is they did motions. So the city mayor, the legislators and the community together, they said, we don't want oil here in front of our shore. So we, they did motions saying that they don't want it. Since the company did, uh, the federal government only did one public hearing <laughs> for this auction, we took this, uh, all these motions and we litigated against the federal government saying that they didn't consult the com communities properly. Yeah. This is being discussed in courts, wow. but it's very likely that we will cancel the block offers because of this. The other example I can give you, which is much more practical, it's about fracking. Mm. The government auctioned fracking blocks on top of very important areas, also where people farm. Mm -hmm. And then the farmers, um, we uh, taught the farmers what happens with fracking. And since the underground belongs to the federal government, it's only local government cannot do much, mm -hmm. but we found loopholes in the legislation to uh, prevent fracking trucks, for example, uh, carrying all the chemicals or for water usage. Mm -hmm. uh, this can be banned locally. So we approved more than 400 uh, city laws stopping the trucks from carrying this in the municipal roads. And this is done by local mobilization so we talked to the church and to the schools and you know the whole community and local power and approved these laws and it's it's a good example of uh, since 2012 mm -hmm. they have been trying to frack Brazil and they didn't do it because we resisted so much that is an amazing story it's so lovely to have these positive examples and also examples of where like coming together and through organizations like yours helps give people a voice and stand up for what they care about. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing stories about local power. <laughs> so we have uh, just been in the, the heat session. Uh, Clyde built heat, trying to understand exactly how the uh, city of Glasgow and its envi environs will be able to take heat and decarbonize it for a net zero future. And I am joined with none other than David Townsend of Town Rock Energy, trying to take heat from former coal mines. So just what is the technology and what can it do for the future? Town Rock Energy is an award-winning consultancy based in, uh, in Edinburgh. And, and Aberdeen and we do geothermal energy consulting and one of the fastest growing spaces uh, in the UK for renewable heating from the ground which is essentially what geothermal is uh, and cooling of course um, you know is mine water geothermal essentially all the flooded coal mines that have you know been rebounding with water since they stopped pumping when the mines closed this is all warm um, and there's huge volumes of it there's so much heat stored in these mines and it's also getting naturally recharged from uh, the geothermal energy being provided by the, from the core of the earth. So essentially all these mines that we once upon relied, you know, relied on to mine the coal that heated our homes and drove uh, you know, the industrial revolution, they're now flooded and they're flooded with water which is what between 10 and 20 degrees warm? Roughly, yeah, give sometimes or take. warmer, yeah. And so that gives us the thermal lift, we can borrow some of that heat 
to then drive, drive that to the surface. And we run that through a heat pump. We, we draw that heat out and we can, we can pump that into our homes. Is that yeah. about right? Exactly. And the benefit is that the temperature is stable. You know, Of course, if you start extracting large quantities of heat, you might start changing the temperature underground. And that's something that we model really carefully and monitor. But it's stable. Whereas if you're using an air source heat pump, which would be the simple equivalent that doesn't use the ground, you're relying on sucking heat out of sub-zero air when you need heating the most and the heat pump efficiencies really struggle. So you have a much higher electricity bill than you would have if you were right. using a ground source uh, heat pump so, or mine water. So I'm assuming the water in these mines is nice and stable temperature. If you want to dip into it in December versus July, it's the same temperature, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. There'll, be, there'll be small fluxes, but it'll never go below like 10. Fantastic. So let me ask you, are we doing this already? Um, and if so, where? You know, where, where, where have we actually been making this work? So in the UK, the hub of mine water innovation and development is in, uh, in and around Newcastle, uh, mm-hmm. Newcastle and Durham. The first multi-megawatt mine water energy scheme was built by a wine company called Lanchester Wines to heat two of their very large warehouses. Um, and that, they, they came online about three, four years ago. But as a result of that private company that took the risk and did this really innovative new project, the local authorities in the area are now building their own multi-megawatt schemes. And we're sharing data between the projects, and it's being very collaborative. And uh, the key regulators, the Coal Authority and the Environment Agency, are being very party to this whole discussion because this being the cluster is where the regulation for this will be refined to make sure that the sector can grow across the entire country. So the projects that have already happened in the UK, are we talking just commercial? Are these, you know, ledger centres and uh, warehouses, or, or, or are they actually linked to homes? I mean, our, our listeners will be thinking there, say, could I be heating my home using my yeah, water? Yeah, there's, there's two little schemes in, in Scotland, one in Shettleston, in, just outside Glasgow, mm-hmm. and one in Lumpinans and Fife. Uh, both were built about 20 years ago by our uh, engineering associate, Stan Johnston, and they, they are heating about 20 flats equivalent for social housing. Um, so the key thing is, when, you're, when, when you think about the cost of a boiler for your house, you think of a few grand, right? And a borehole into a mine is going to cost tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. So, so for an individual house, you've got to have a pretty big house to justify the cost of a borehole and a heat pump. Uh, you're talking probably 30 grand or something for a minimum scale system. Um, ideally, you do it for multiple residences in a single building yeah. or you link different buildings together. But if there's a couple millions out there with mansions, we're happy to speak to them about it. So obviously not all of us live in, in said mansions, but um, what, what, what's holding back mine water geothermal from ruling the world? I mean, these mines have been sitting there flooded, disused for, for decades now. Mm. So why, why haven't we done this yet? Yeah, well, actually, interestingly, some of the mines are still rebounding. So even though they've been closed for 30 years, the water is still coming to the surface. And there are areas where the coal authority is having to mitigate that with new treatment schemes. The reason why is because we've been competing with gas on the open market for heat provision service forever. And gas gets heavily subsidized and is extremely cheap for heat. And the, the sunk cost of infrastructure to distribute that gas is already there. And when you, you, you can't put mine water geothermal through a gas pipe. You've got to build yeah, your own yeah, yeah, heat yeah, network. Yeah. So there's a huge capital cost, which needs to have a strong business case. And when it's purely evaluated against the cost savings of not spending gas, money on gas, but you're still buying electricity to run the pumps and the heat pumps, it's very marginal. Mm. Uh, so there's the, the projects that have been built to date have predominantly been supported by the renewable heat incentive yep. to make them cost, cost effective against gas. Um, 
and that's gone now and we're kind of watching this space but we're also innovating really hard to see how we bring the cost down of this how we have multiple scales of this type of system for different types of customers and where of course we do heating and cooling together you have double the revenue for the same sunk cost and there's a lot of business model innovation that's going into this uh, we were shown in the presentations just now we're at the lighthouse in, in glasgow uh, fantastic presentation and and uh, i think it was yourself who showed a map of all the old mine workings and an over sort of overlaying that onto a map of the central belt so we could see that you know the biggest towns and the biggest cities in scotland that the, the pop, most population dense areas tend to be sitting on old mine workings so is it fair to say that the demand for heat is actually pretty closely co-located with where these mine mine workings are and where the heat is just locked up underground yeah it's it's almost perfectly matching as cities build heat networks as they realize that gas is not a viable option and that hydrogen is not a commercially viable option compared to just using heat pumps and heat networks, then mines are going to play a really important role both as a source of heat and also for seasonal thermal energy storage. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you very yeah. much. I think you've, you've explained an extremely complex topic and hopefully something that we'll, we'll become more and more familiar with as the years go by. So thank you. Okay, Thanks, and enjoy COP. Appreciate it. Enjoy COP too. So, hey there, welcome back. I am now in the green zone and I am on the amazing UKRI stand talking to heaps of people all about energy and carbon and climate action and net zero and lots of other exciting things. And I am with Jodie, who has just been showing me the most amazing game called How Bad Are Bananas? The small carbon footprint game. So, hey Jodie, welcome. How's Hi. Your, how's your day been going? It's been amazing, you, just talking to so many people and seeing their shock when they play the game, it's, it's incredible. Okay, so you're going to have to tell us a little bit about the game, but then mostly what I want to hear about is how people are reacting to that and how it is changing their entire world. <laughs> um, so the game How Bad Are Bananas is a simple comparison higher or lower carbon footprint game based off the book How Bad Are Bananas by Mike Berners-Lee. Um, so we take things like a kilogram of bananas versus a kilogram of tomatoes grown organically in the UK in March and we ask people where the, they think the carbon footprint comes from in each of them and what they think contributes mainly to it. Um, so with bananas you're looking at the shipping across from South America over to the UK and then with um, tomatoes you've got them being hothoused um, because being in the UK in March means that a lot of fossil fuels is being pumped into heating them so they can grow. Um, a lot of people, when they do that one, find it really shocking that these tomatoes are actually... Wait, guess, guess, here's your chance. Da, da, da. Do you know what? I should tell you, actually, on Local Zero, we run a regular slot called Future or Fiction, which is a guessing game where we have to guess. And I always get it wrong. And I think it's fair to acknowledge that I got this one wrong as well, didn't I? So tell us which, yeah, thanks. <laughs> tell us which is the worst in terms of carbon footprint. The tomatoes. So they're actually 42 times worse than the bananas because of the hot housing. So we take an average of the hot housing across the UK. So obviously some people do it renewably. Some people do it with um, fossil fuels. And that means that it's 42 times worse just because of the amount of energy put into heating the hothouse. Um, a lot of people are shocked by it. Um, and when I first played it in 2017, I was so shocked by how bad red meat actually was for the environment. So I ended up giving up red meat. I haven't eaten it for three and a half years and I 
took um, half a ton a year off my carbon footprint just by giving up red meat. Uh, my family have then linked to that and they still eat red meat, which I'm never going to tell them that they need to stop, but they've reduced the amount they have in their diet. So we used to have it like twice a week and now they have it once a month. And it's just incredible to see how just having a conversation with people, seeing their reactions and then just the shock goes, oh, I, this is something really small that I could change. I could just do a little reduction here. I could buy my tomatoes in March from Italy instead of the UK and I can have a lower carbon footprint just by thinking about these things a bit more. And I think that's a really good point. So I love the fact that you didn't work, you don't work in this field. You've come to this and you got super engaged by the game, but now you come out and you work with this company, which is amazing. And to see the changes that you've made just from that education, I mean, I can't believe that I got it wrong. And it just highlights to me that there is so much that we don't think about in all of this. Amazing, thank you so much. So that was my day at the lighthouse in Glasgow covering all things heat with a big focus on Scotland, the Clyde, Glasgow, um, and indeed beyond. So what did I learn? Well, <laughs> I've got pages and pages of notes here. I guess the key points are uh, from me is that these technologies and, and how they're being used, these are very much real. These, are, these have been built. They are heating people's homes. They're heating people's workplaces. These are not simply on the back of a fag packet or in the, in, in the drawing room, um, which is really encouraging to see. Uh, there's also, for me, a couple of open questions. So one is, should we be thinking more about locating our heat demand where the most renewable and cheapest sources of energy are? Typically, we've done this the other way around. We've located our housing and our workplaces in particular locations uh, for reasons other than that being where the, the heat source is. Oh, normally, that, that would be the case. Um, and we, we have channeled heat into those properties normally in the forms of gas, but also electricity and oil, you know, and, and we have a whole gas network that satisfies, satisfies that. So maybe when we're thinking about redeveloping uh, our towns and cities, and particularly in the, the brownfield sites, or, or even when we're building out on the fringes, how can we locate those sources of demand closest to where the heat is? And finally, we must think about the kind of churn of these technologies, particularly at an individual and household level. When you're swapping out your boiler for a heat pump, it's normally going to be when you, your boiler has packed up. And that is what was referred to today as a distress purchase. And we've all been there. A boiler's broken, typically the day before Christmas. Uh, and that is the very definition of stressful. So how do we make this cheap, easy and stressless for people to swap in a lower carbon form of heating? So a really, really exciting day. Credit to uh, Scottish Government, uh, Scottish Enterprise for organising a fantastic session. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm off on, to the, off on to the next event before I uh, break down and have a snooze somewhere in the street. So I'm back home now after a really exciting day at COP. I mean, we did it all, really chats in the city centre, out to the green zone to see what was going on and some really inspirational conversations there. Um, so really unearthed a whole load of topics. And if anything, I would say I'm feeling positive and absolutely excited for what's to come over the remainder of COP. 
I've left Matt in the city off to the pub and uh, hopefully he'll still be on top form for tomorrow. But for me, I'm going to see my family, have a roast dinner and, uh, and get myself re-energised to do it all again tomorrow. Produced by Bespoken Media.